Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's up, Mets Up listeners? Back here for episode number 73 of the Mets Up podcast, the long-awaited Once Upon a Time in Queens episode. We've been waiting to do this all offseason. We've been waiting for a rainy day. We've given you numerous rain checks and pushed it back and pushed it back and pushed it back. But we have finally hit a point of we have nothing else to talk about with the Mets. Everything has been talked about. Everything has been exhausted. We have a slight labor update, and I mean slight in that it's one sentence, and then we'll probably be done talking about it. We have a slight update on the Mets free agent market, which is that something we already knew. But hey, we'll talk about it for a second as as well. And maybe a couple other minor things here and there, but really this is going to be the Once Upon a Time in Queens episode. So if you guys have not yet watched it, go ahead and watch it, or you can just listen to what we're going to talk about here and get a quick like cliffhanger, cliffhanger, spark notes, cliff, what's it called? Cliff notes. Cliff notes, yeah, I combined them together, there we go. Yeah, if you want a spoiler, the Mets will win the World Series. Shocker, who saw that coming? <laughs> the Mets are the 1986 World Series champions. If you're waiting these almost 40 years, you now know what happened in that World Series. But yeah, that's what we're doing this episode. If you guys are enjoying what we do, make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and the YouTube channel at MetsUp. You'll be able to find us there. Uh, if you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, you'll be able to find us. Drop us a five-star rating. Drop us a review. We're going to be doing a mailbag episode on the next one because we really do have nothing to talk about, so we need you guys to help us out a little bit here. Drop it in a review. Drop it to us on Twitter, on Instagram, anything. We will be looking to answer your guys' questions as well as a little update on the YouTube side here. This is probably going to be the last time for the next couple weeks that we drop the full episode on YouTube. We're going to be dropping clips and highlights most likely for the next few. Just trying something out new on the YouTube channel. If it doesn't work, we will be be returning to the old format, but it's the offseason. we got to try something out, so hopefully you guys enjoy that. And now we bring in James. Mr. Jeter had no range. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. And just to give everyone a sense out there of the Mets content freeze right now, today Joel Sherman wrote a long article with the Post about um, Buck Showalter and Billy Epler's first walk through the Mets facility at St. Lucie. That's what the article's about. That couldn't be more insignificant. <laughs> the Mets' new manager is spending his first days in Port St. Lucie along with GM Billy Epler. That's that's the tagline for the article. That's, that's horrible. We're so dead. Baseball's so dead right now. It's Completely dead. We had that update from the labor meetings, which was that the owners are still doing absolutely nothing. The players are conceding more. And we, I, I saw Joel Sherman actually tweet about this. He said, if they were third and 15, they're like fourth and 14 now. It's just, <laughs> it's not really much of an improvement about what happened. They move forward, but who really cares? Because it was like a yard on a 15-yard scenario. I and mean, we told you guys a few weeks ago that one of the players' big chips here was get it, cutting into spring training because that's where the owners start to make their money and the players make no money from it. So... We're almost definitely going to miss a large piece of that now, and I think everybody should expect that and not really freak out when you do. I would only freak out if we got to 
I'm, this is going to sound crazy to people. I would only freak out once you saw March 10th on your calendar and there was still no deal. If you see March 10th and there's still no deal and there's not obvious momentum, then get scared that we're going to be missing games. But until that calendar switches, you got you got five weeks right now where you're not, don't worry about it. Put it out of your head. Watch some college basketball maybe. Enjoy the Super Bowl in two weeks. Let that all run. March 10th. Then you get nervous about baseball. Yeah, that's I think when uh, Doomsday you start to go, oh no, what what is happening? Are we actually going to be playing games this year? But right now, there's no energy, there's no movement forward. Uh, the owners are stubborn as hell. The players are actually making concessions, and the owners don't seem to care. It's unfortunate because this is exactly what we said was going to happen, and it seems like the owners are probably just going to have their way, which really sucks. Yeah, but that's kind of how every sports labor negotiation has gone forever. I think the players are going to have to pick their few victories, which is always the place they were going to be coming from anyway. And as long as they pick the few victories that help the lion's share of players, then maybe we'll be in a better place. As long as we can win something. I don't know. We'll see what happens. It's too it's too hard to tell. It's too hard to tell, and honestly, it's just it, nothing has really happened at the end of the day. It's so much he said, she said, no actual movement has been made. Then in terms of other random stuff that went on with the Mets, we talked about uh, Mets free agency updates here. Even though there is no actual update, it's just John Heyman basically saying that the Mets are looking to spend a lot on pitching. That last year, they felt like they got caught with their pants down a little bit. They thought they had enough. Everybody got hurt, and they went, oh, no, we need to sign Vance Worley and Jared Eikhoff. So they don't want to do that again. He basically said to what? See the Mets go close to $300 million, right, for total uh, total payroll, I think, this year? Especially because I, mean, I think they're at 270 right now, and the roster is nowhere near complete. I don't think this team can even be considered the favorite for the division unless they get over 300 and that would probably include signing either one of Carlos Rodon or Clayton Kershaw and then additional Yusei Kikuchi, Michael Pineda, Tyler Anderson, Dan Straley, a bunch of the guys we mentioned with Nick last week but a lot of pitchers. You got to throw a lot of shit at the wall here, and you got to hope something sticks. Yeah, Mets are nowhere done from spending, it seems like, whenever baseball does resume. And that's it. That's all we got for you with baseball. <laughs> so let's go ahead and move on to Once Upon a Time in Queens. We've now watched all of it, me and James included, have both seen the entire thing, and we have got some extensive notes. We've got a deep dive into these episodes. Now, this one's not going to be an hour and 20-minute episode like we did last time, but we are going to pretty much cover everything that happened in it. It was really, really good, just from, you know, a starting point, a really, really good documentary that I think if you are a Mets fan, it is a must watch. Definitely. And I think especially a Mets fan from our generation, because while we know every single thing about the Mets in our lifetimes, including a lot of you listeners out there, because we can see the demographics. We know how old basically everybody is who listens to us. None of us were really ever aware of what actually happened in 1986. What led up to the 1986 team, what happened after the 1986 team, and kind of just how that team and that era fits in Mets lore and how really important and memorable and special it was for a lot of the Mets fans and the Mets players and the Mets coaches who were able to experience that that blip of massive, massive success and then have to watch it fade away so quickly, quicker than anybody expected. Yeah, like you said, we as Mets fans know about that 1986 year, but me and you specifically, like as much as our dads told us, they didn't tell us every single thing that happened in 1982, 1983. Like, it did a really good job, especially in the first episode, of setting the scene, of setting up how the Mets got to this 86 point and kind of the Mets before that. Like you said in the notes, uh, they were a complete mess outside of that real one world series that they won. Yeah, legitimate shit show for the entire length of length of history of the organization. I also thought it was cool that this was even just a four part documentary. This was one of the longer 30 for 30s that ESPN has put out. Like, besides for. Um, for The Last Dance, the upcoming Jeter documentary, which is going to be one of the funniest comedies ever written. 
I don't know what other ESPN 30 for 30s have even gone to four full parts, almost four hours long worth of a documentary. Yeah, no, it was really good. What, did Jimmy Jimmy Kimmel produced it, right? Yeah, Jimmy Kimmel, executive producer. Big big Mets fan. Yeah, probably a big reason why it also got four parts too. Big name. He probably put a lot of money behind it too. Like there was there was good reason. It, it, it didn't feel unnecessary to be this long either. Like every single episode you were getting legitimate info and like you were watching, you're like, oh my God, this is, this is crazy. Like the stuff that the Mets were doing was wild, even from the start. Definitely. And the first episode, again, just to start there, was important because you basically started with the inception of the Mets franchise, how in the 50s, the Dodgers and the Giants both left for California and it kind of left uh, blue-collar New York with this weird chasm lacking a fan base because those, those were most of the fans of those two teams and all of like, the tuxedo, tuxedo wearers in Manhattan, as they said specifically in the dock, were the Yankees people. And when the Mets did come in, they actually wore the blue from the Dodgers and the orange from the Giants, which is something I absolutely never put together in my life. I only learned that, like I want to say, in the last like five years. I honestly think when I started YouTube, someone tweeted me and asked me, like, do you know why? And I was like, no, I, I have no clue. Like, orange and blue, whatever. And he's like, the Dodger blue and the Giants orange. I was like, oh, wow, that's actually like so obvious. We even took kind of the, the Giants NY logo, I mean. <laughs> Basically, yeah. And also just setting the stage with how bad those Mets teams were besides the Miracle Championship in 69 and the Miracle Run that happened in 73 and kind of putting the backdrop on how hectic New York was in 1970s. A lot of us have grown up in a New York that was like pretty rosy and happy. A lot of people have worked in New York. People in their family have worked in New York. We know New York as like Wall Street or Times Square or Bryant Park all these beautiful places, but in the 70s, New York was nuts, and they kept cutting to that movie, The Warriors. That yeah. My dad loves that movie. It's just my about, dad, too. Yeah, of course they do. <laughs> just about these street gangs that traveled around New York in the 1970s, like picking fights and robbing people, which I guess was like basically how the world viewed New York at this time. And I guess it was kind of true because like you heard about the blackout that happened. The, I remember the Bronx is Burning documentary, too, from like 10 or 15 years ago with Billy Martin and all the crazy Yankee shit and how there was serial killers in New York and there was looters and the blackout and all this insane shit going. New York was a hectic time and and then it's just basically this whole episode was about that but then it gets into like the precursors to those 1986 teams precursors and they just at the beginning of this episode they flash Billy Bean which for Billy Bean to be sitting in his sunglasses and his shirt hanging out in his mansion and looked like Northern California was just a hilarious fucking scene. Yeah no Billy Bean uh he was was a part of these you know beginnings of the Mets as a player, of course, and just never really panned out. Well, he was in the same draft that brought the Mets Daryl Strawberry. I believe Strawberry was the number one overall pick, and Billy Bean was their second first-round pick later that round. And it's funny that he had a quote about how everyone was hanging out in the minor leagues, like just talking about how they wanted to make it to the big leagues, wanted to make it to the big leagues, wanted to make it to the big leagues. And one day Frank Cashin, the Mets curmudgeon like pre- team president at the time, walked in. He was like, why do you guys want to make it to the big leagues? Like, I want to be that guy. And that's kind of some foreshadowing on just Billy Bean's like life and his um his trajectory anyway. And even the fact that he got called up to the Mets, I think it was in 1984. He was traded right before the 1986 season, and he said he was hanging out like in the punk bars in the East Village. All right, I guess he wasn't that focused on baseball. These other guys were partying with models and actresses. And Billy Bean was like listening to the Ramones play a live set in East Village. Slumming it up a little bit. A very different life than what a lot of the 86 Mets were. Definitely. And even just, again, just, I just mentioned Frank Cashin. It was a funny parallel to the current Mets that this team sucked so bad through the late 70s. And they got bought out by this new owner, Doubleday, who people like had said had this weird connection to Abner Doubleday, the fabled creator of the game of baseball. And he pulled in Frank Cashin, this old school baseball guy who had a lot of like acumen and understanding. And these two guys like led the charge in this new era of Mets that was going to make them successful in like what seemed like three to five years, if anybody could could pull something from that. Yeah, and of course they talked about Tom Seaver too, about how like just he was the greatest thing that ever happened to this franchise. Like 
if it wasn't for Tom Seaver, who knows what this team would even look like from the start. Like, Tom Seaver being such an integral part, and then how the Mets just treated him like absolute shit and got rid of him. Like, the Mets, you know, the Lull Mets thing, we're trying to kill that. We're done with Lull Mets. But, like, it really does go back from the start of this franchise. They were a bit of a joke. Definitely. And the fact that they had this one franchise player who was there forever, beloved by the fan base, won Cy Youngs, won them a World Series, the hands down like best pitcher in baseball during his era. At this time, one of the best pitchers in the history of the game. And the Mets just one day, randomly in the middle of May or June, just traded him for a bag of balls across the cross <laughs> halfway across the country. Unbelievable stuff. Just to save some money. Yeah, they they were cheap back then. The Mets have always been cheap until now. And that was the entire theme that goes through his entire documentary of how consistently cheap the Mets were forever and always. How they were always finding these stupid-ass ways to cut corners and do some bullshit. Literally, like they just were looking to cut costs and somehow not be the absolute physical worst product in all of Major League Baseball. But they, they still found a lot of ways to be horrible, as we know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> One other highlight from this episode, Ed Lynch cracked me up every single time he got on the microphone. Chubby, yeah. chubby relief pitcher. He was hilarious. He had some funny quotes when we talked about the uh, plane episode, too. And then he mentioned that he cried when he got traded away from the Mets in 86 when he was sitting in a bar with his wife killed me. He knew it. He was like, God, I'm going I'm I'm to get there. And they just got rid of me. Like, how could they do this? Definitely. Another thing that I found funny in this episode was because, again, they focused on a lot of stuff that happened in the 60s and then the late 70s and early 80s. Videos that came out from back then cracked me the fuck up. The tone of voice that everybody spoken back then when they were on camera, you know, was something like this. The same pantameter. I just, I laughed. Like Casey Stengel talking made me laugh when George Foster got traded and he said the quote about coming to this team that's going to be the big something big one day. I can't wait to be a big part of it. Like, was everyone just really corny back then? Like, was that like a, a, play, a place to be? Well, George Foster was, I think they used that too, a little bit of foreshadowing too, because yeah. as we know, George Foster got kicked out right when the team started to get really good, which is sad. And like, it's, it's ironic too, because he was kind of the guy that got this whole thing started. And it almost doesn't get talked about enough that he was like the first big piece really to get the Mets moving forward. And he was kind of, uh, I don't want to say... Like an outcast in Cincinnati, despite being such a good player, they just didn't want to pay him anymore, right? I think that's what it was. It seemed like he didn't really fit in with most baseball players at the time because he was just kind of reserved, kind of quiet, kind of like relaxed, wanted to do his thing. And that came up uh, later in this series that we'll talk about. But I also, something I did not know was that the Mets brought Tom Seaver back in 1983. I had never ever knew that when the team was gaining competency they bring back this their really old like golden boy back for one season and then literally kick him to the curb immediately yep and they got rid of him real quick like he was a shell of himself it's almost like they were like maybe it's it's like when Mets fans were like bring back Harvey I know they're not nearly the same but like he comes back and then you're like oh yeah he's just not that guy anymore and then that 84 season Doc Gooden took his spot and won the rookie of the year <laughs> yeah which like we know how good Doc Gooden was and is and all that kind of stuff. Like, he really was. He came up and, like, he would have been right now one of the most talked about players in all of Major League Baseball for how good he was at the young age that he was. He was disgusting. Yeah, I think he even was then between the 1984 and 1985 seasons before he really started doing a lot of coke and he was actually consistently the best pitcher in baseball when he was 20 years old. Well, yeah, I feel like he just gets lost in the shuffle of, like, if you weren't a Mets fan or even a New Yorker during that time. Like, I'm not sure how well the Seattle Mariners fans know Doc Gooden was, you know what I'm saying? Like, his reach wasn't really, I feel like, uh, nationwide as much as it was, like, the dominating, like, the New York, the big market kind of thing. Definitely, but I don't even know if any baseball players was uh, had nationwide reach at this time, besides, like, the four or five best players in the league or the guys who That's played true. in or had big plays, plays in the World Series. Which brings you to the next, next guy the Mets pulled in this first episode, which was Keith Hernandez. 
And we have alluded to some stuff with Keith before about how he did find his way into this Mets team. But basically, again, we've told the story that he was caught doing drugs. He was doing tons of drugs in the early 80s after he had won his MVP. And he got the game-winning hit for the Cardinals in 1983 to win the World Series for them and was traded to the Mets that following June as a 28-year-old. Yeah, it was punishment because of all the drug stuff, because he wasn't, you know, the Cardinal way, right? Uh, I can't remember who the manager was of the Cardinals. Whitey Herzog. Whitey Herzog, yes. Most famous manager of all time. Basically said, we don't like what you're doing, so we're going to send you to the New York Mets because they are the worst team. They're a shit organization. We're going to punish you for doing what you did to us, basically, even though he was a great player. (laughs) Incredible player. And his quotes about cocaine were hilarious because – Dave said that three players in the Cardinals locker room were singled out for cocaine use, and Keith was the only one who got traded. It seemed like he was pretty uh, butthurt about that, especially because he grew up a Cardinals fan. He said him and his dad grew up Cardinals fans, which in California, I guess, was weird. It was probably just because they predated the teams in California. But then he said he did so much cocaine in 1980 that he had no recollection of the entire year. It's crazy. And then in his court case, which happened in 1985, he called it the demon of this earth. <laughs> Just like, fuck the fuck, man. Holy shit. Qu- quick turnaround. Yeah. And then he wanted to retire instead of becoming a Met. And basically his dad convinced him to stick with it. And then, uh, okay, he actually got traded to the Mets in 1983. I screwed that one up before. So fix that one. And in 1984, Frank Cashin came to him after the season said, it's pretty obvious you don't want to be here. So tell me if you want to be here or not. I'll give you an extension or I'll trade you. And his dad convinced him to stick around and, like, become a leader, be a man, and, like, kind of lead this young team to where they had to go. And he did become, very clearly, the leader and the mentor in this team. It seemed like he really just changed the entire complexion of what this team was and could be. Watching this documentary gave me a greater appreciation for the player that Keith Hernandez was with the Mets. We've always heard how good he was. And, like, you can look at his numbers, and comparatively to today's standards, they don't, like, you know, make you go, like, wow, what a beast. But you see the impact that he... One, did have on the field, like, he he was a really, really good player, obviously. But two, like, he was the leader of that team. It was Keith Hernandez's team, no doubt. Definitely. And, again, it's very clear watching this, the impact he has. Because I, don't, I just don't think that our generation who will look at someone's baseball reference page and kind of derives impact that, day, that way, we won't really understand what someone who was, like, a real quarterback like Keith Hernandez could do for a baseball team, especially a baseball team that was this young. And one of the young guys who Keith... Uh, had a checkered relationship with Daryl Strawberry. Also, they showed his rise during this episode. The fact that they p- called him up in May when he was 20 years old on an awful team reminded me so much of so many current Mets things that they've done, like how they rushed the promotion of Ahmed Rosario, how they brought up Wheeler and Harvey on those awful, awful Mets teams in the early 2010s. Like It's funny how this thing just keeps rolling, always exactly the same, rolling, rolling. It was simply to get seats into this or butts into seats there was like daryl strawberry our young phenom he's up he's ready to play he was so not ready at that time he wasn't but he also he took a month and a half and then he was incredible he ended up winning the rookie of the year in 83 after a blazing hot summer and all this coincided with new york city becoming cool wall street popped off the music scene was growing a lot of artists in the city yuppies were suddenly returning to new york city young professionals and all these guys all started getting wild daryl was partying doc was partying keith was his hip Good-looking single guy, former MVP, World Series champion with the mustache, yeah. going out partying hard. And, and they mentioned how in 1984, Strawberry was just getting too fucked up and missing games. Said he missed all of his day games after the night games. So he acted like a jerk. And then Keith mentioned to the press that he was un, unable to handle the partying and it was making an impact on the team, which I thought was pretty shy, uh, interesting way to handle that like we talk about you know like the Lindor McNeil conflict right so much like these guys were legitimately brawling and yelling at each other and calling each other out and it somehow made that team stronger almost it almost made the bond better like guys we're all here for one thing like we can go do have our fun and do this but you gotta come to your job every day ready to perform and like 
you got to really appreciate it. Like the Mets, as much of like fuck ups and crazy psychos they were, they did get the job done. They still did come to work every day after things got you know cleaned up a little bit and did their stuff. That was the whole mantra of the next psycho that got brought into the fold was David Johnson, who the Mets hired before 1984, who is just one of the craziest motherfuckers I've ever heard on camera. That guy is literally nuts. Like, holy crap. He, he said, you can do whatever you want. You just have to play. I love him, though. He also, I thought it was really cool that for that time, he was one of the few guys who was like using a computer and analytics. Yes. Analytics at the time. It, it isn't what it is today, obviously. But he was one of the few guys that was ahead of the curve. I was like, no, we need to look into the numbers more to figure out how to get the best players and get the best team. Definitely. He was a math major in college. They referenced that. And I was kind of shocked by that. But it was really cool. And he also like stuck his foot in the ground saying that the 19-year-old Doc Gooden had to be on that team in 1984. That was the right call. I also had no idea that he made the last out of the 1969 World Series against the Mets. I had no idea about that either. I was like, that's crazy. That is incredible. And the fact that he said he channeled that emotion because the Orioles lost as the best team by far in 69, then came back in 1-70 in in dominating fashion. And he channeled that between 85 and 86 when the Mets were really good in 85, couldn't get over the hump, and then finally broke through in 86. It's really, really interesting side note there. And then they also pulled Ron Darling for Lima Zilli before the 84 season. They also drafted Lenny Dykstra, who the story of his his tryout. Everything about Lenny Dykstra in this interview, he was the star of the show. Yeah, I mean, like, it's just crazy that Lenny Dykstra basically was found by the Mets because of an open tryout. They were like, all the best prospects, all the best athletes in baseball come to this, you know, one area to try out for the New York Mets, right? And Lenny Dykstra was not invited, I don't believe. He just showed up, right? He was just a guy who was like, I'm going to be here. And when they, like, asked him, he was like, I'm fucking Lenny fucking Dykstra. Like, I'm I'm good. He had such an arrogance to him that you obviously saw throughout his playing days. But it's not like it just came on at one point. He was always a nut job. He said, I'm the best fucking player here. <laughs> As he says it through his whatever fucking drugs he was on during this interview. He just looked incoherent. He sounded incoherent. But at the same time, he remembered every single thing from this collection of years perfectly. Clear as a crystal. He was so locked in during those times. And it's crazy, too, because, like, he was really good, Letty so Dykstra. I feel like if you forget about that because of all the crazy drug and the fact that he lives on a different planet now, but he was so good in a huge part of these teams. Huge. Also, we mentioned the uh, the Doc season in 1984 as the Rookie of the Year, youngest All-Star ever. He struck out the side in the All-Star game that year, which really reminded me of that All-Star game when DeGrom stepped on the yep. scene, struck out the side. At the time, I don't even know if this record is still standing or what, but it's the most strikeouts for rookie pitcher ever. And that's a time, too, when people didn't strike out like they do nowadays. Like, there's yeah. so many more strikeouts in the game of baseball. Obviously, they pitched longer back then. Yeah, he also threw more innings. I'm pretty sure, because I was looking at this before, I know his 85 season, he th- when he was like the best pitcher, best pitch season ever, he threw 275 innings. I think in uh, his rookie year, he threw at least 215. So still plenty yeah. of strikeouts there, but I, yeah, again, the Doc Gooden dominant is something that I knew, but I didn't really know. And I think to see the magnitude that he had on this team and on Major League Baseball as a whole during this episode, this first episode, was pretty telling. Especially because in that All-Star game, his catcher in the National League was Gary Carter. And these two formed one of the funniest relationships I've ever seen after learning about who Gary Carter was as a guy between this like real real happy-go-lucky, kind of try-hard Christian guy and Doc Gooden, this 20-year-old cocaine user from the hood. He couldn't have been more different, but he was obviously a huge part. They traded for him in eight, after 84, right, it was? It was after 84. And I didn't realize that he had this attitude around the game where he was like kind of a square and like that annoying try-hard who like everyone hates when you play baseball. And Keith, it came out very obviously that he despised him as a person he was like he because he was everything that they weren't right like gary carter was like the buttoned up guy he loved being on tv being in front of the camera looking the part he wanted to play like the game like the right way he was very much 
like the uh, the absolute what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, straight edge. Yes, he was an absolute straight edge, and that was not what the Mets were. But it also is kind of what the Mets needed a little bit was a guy who was just even keel, steady, and could be there every day and be reliant for you. Because like Gary Carter, also damn good player, Hall of Famer. Like it wasn't just that they brought in this this even keel guy, but he also was one of the best catchers of all time. Yeah, uh, top three in the MVP multiple times, ten straight All Star appearances. They said he was the best catcher in baseball, and Keith was the best first baseman in baseball, and that was a big part of this team. Also, the fact they called him Cameron Carter because he loved doing interviews and doing commercials once he got to New York was really, really funny. And he had that classic smile, like a hey, goofy top two smile. He he was he was just like the the classic like he was he was a ham for the camera, as they say. Yeah, and then that's again that doc season in '85. Once Carter was his everyday catcher, he went 24 and seven with a 1.53 ERA, a 2.16 FIP, 276 and two thirds innings pitched, and 268 strikeouts. It's probably the best season ever pitched. And now, like, the 85 season, they were cool. They were good. The fan base was fun. Everyone was having a good-ass time. But they just couldn't get over that Cardinals team who was still, like, one of the stalwarts. They needed to sweep them to get into the playoffs. They lost the last game. They were pissed. But they still came back at home, got a standing ovation. They won 98 games and had to go home. But that really set the stage for how sick this team was going to be in uh, 86. And Chuck D opened up episode two with a hysterical quote. Not a hysterical quote, a nice quote saying that, this Mets like run was like a trilogy that was building to 1986, like a good movie series. Like 84, things came together. 85, you got close and barely lost. Now 86, now you have to win. You have no choice. You know, they improved every year moving forward. And of course, as we know, 86 was the magical season. But uh, fans, the city, let's get a little crazy before 86. There was some nuts stuff going on. Yeah, this is when New York became hot again. This is when all the bad stuff of the 70s faded away. All the jubilance and exuberance of the 1980s came full-fledged. New York City had the best clubs in the world. People were partying all night, every night. The East Village, Lower East Side, Uptown, Midtown. The place was just insane. This was when uh, Saturday Night Live got really popular. We've heard about those people partying. The New York music scene was very insane with punk rock, Madonna, disco. Like, there was insane stuff. And these Mets were treated like royalty. Like, Keith Hernandez was a borderline A-lister going to these clubs, doing whatever the hell he wanted. This entire team was going and partying together, doing just the most insane shit in the world. Yeah, no, they were, they were having fun. They were having a really, really good time. They were like rock stars. They were bigger than life. It was actually, I couldn't believe how popular they were for baseball players because we just kind of don't see that now. Yeah, well, this was a time when baseball was still the number one sport in America. And the Mets at this time seemed to be the most popular team in in, in the whole world because the Yankees had taken a massive downturn, which was a big thing that led to the Mets' increased popularity. And these guys were the shit. They were cool. They were good looking, you know, like... Doc and Darrow was two young black guys. This is when, like, black people started becoming popular in pop culture. Keith was suave, MVP. All these dudes were young, and they were hip. Like, this was the shit. I'm also hysterical. They mentioned they were partying at the China Club. Like, that was Rick James's club of choice. Yeah. Prince's club of choice. Like, these were the te- the peaks, the top of the top doing it. But with all that partying came a lot of white stuff. And this team was doing copious amounts of cocaine everywhere they could get it. This was also, this was the same time that Len Bias od two days after being number one overall pick in the NBA draft, June 1986. And Doc Gooden said that he would go to his Coke dealer and ask him for the Len Bias stuff. One of the craziest lines I've ever heard. And he like shrugged off like, yeah, I just wanted the strongest shit. Like looking back, I know that was crazy, but at the time, like, I just wanted the strongest shit. I wanted to have a good time and that was how we did it. We had lots of cocaine. Like I, the Len Bias story on its own is insane, but then for Daryl Shaw, he took it to the next level. Give me the shit that killed him. Doc, not Daryl. Uh, yeah, Doc, my bad. Give me the shit that killed him. That's it's nuts. Crazy. And then just like based on player movement before the 1986 season, a couple of the last pieces for the major run, they pulled Ray Knight, who was like a crazy fuck, not scared of anybody, 
Also didn't fit in with his teams. This big hunky Southern boy. He was like, hey, he had like kind of a goofy face and big cheeks. But he fit in the fact that he like he was gamer. All, he was a gamer. He didn't take any shit. He was ready to fight at any given moment. Definitely, he became one of the leaders of this team, like kind of secretly under the radar because he wasn't a superstar, but he was one of the guys who led everything. And that's like classic for this era. It's like the six hitter who was a good defensive player and like a good bat with like a tiny bit of power and like came through clutch. Like this Mets lineup set the tone for like the perfect ideal baseball lineups that would like happen throughout baseball. Where it was like Mookie was a slick guy leading off, Keith Hernandez contact guy at two, like Gary Carter all around bat at three. Daryl Strawberry, power bat at four. Or Daryl was five. I think I might have missed a guy in the middle. Oh, yeah, because I think two was another speed guy. And Keith was three. Carter, four. Strawberry, five. Bray Knight, six. Yeah, like they, they, they built a very stereotypical lineup, like you just said, of like what you would expect during the time the Mets had it. Yeah, and then also uh, they guess got Bobby Ojeda, who finished out with the rotation to be a star-studded five-man unit. And they traded the most bitter man on earth, Calvin Schiraldi, for him, who was so bitter. one of the stars of this documentary. He, every time they brought him on, you could see it just, it irked him so badly that he was one traded away and two, that this is the team that then went on to beat him in the World Series. Like, he was just, I've never seen someone be so bitter over baseball stuff like this. Like, he just felt like he was wrong, that he's so salty about it, which is also kind of hilarious to watch nowadays, that, like, a 56-year-old man is still so upset about something that happened in the 80s. Getting so upset, and he was so mad. And it's just even funnier that he was even on this team and was traded, and that did come up later in a big at-bat against uh, Kevin Mitchell. But this team was just completely full of psychos, and Bobby Ojeda put that in perspective, that everyone in this team thought they were the best, thought they should be the best, but that kind of led to this incredible level of competition and like everyone kind of rising each other like raising each other up like with strong tide lifts all boats yes it kind of seemed like what you have from this Mets team that was probably like 12 bats deep and like six or seven pitchers who could all be studs and then a door opened when uh, Mookie Wilson caught a freak injury in spring training and that got Lenny Dykstra into the starting lineup nails as someone likes to call him as Lenny said it's better than being called thumbtacks <laughs> but they, they didn't like that he gave himself a nickname as a rookie, which is really classic old baseball stuff, you know? Yeah, and I think, like, going back to what you were saying about, like, this team, like, played hard, like, everything they did was hard. Like, that's why Mookie got hurt, because they did one extra rep in practice, right? It was like a rundown thing, yeah. and a ball whizzed by because Mookie was running and just drilled him in the face, and yeah. he, was, he was done. <laughs> <laughs> he was out till June after his stupid practice rep. That also gave a look for uh, Kevin Mitchell, who became one of the other monsters of this team. They had the crazy stories that he killed a cat just because he was, like, such a big, burly guy who was, like, really tough and didn't really talk that much. And I believe he came from the hood, too. Yeah, hood of San Diego, which is a big reason he got traded later on. And he was, these two guys, Mitchell and uh, Dykstra and Ray Knight, actually, were some of the bigger fight instigators on this team that had three fights on the se- four fights on the season, one of each instigated by those three guys. And then one instigated by uh, the first base coach, Bill Robinson, who seemed to also be a favorite of this clubhouse. <laughs> He's stuck- Crazy. Imagine the first base. Dang, the Mets could do that this year with the- these coaches they've set up. Just start a fight with the pitcher. I'm in. I'm so in to see a couple brawls this year. I want to see it happen just with the other teams, not the same team. Definitely. But that like aggressiveness as a team like set the tone for the way this team was going to play and act. And it was pretty cool the way the documentary laid that out by the fact that they just went on the field trying to smash people one of them i forgot who it was i think it might have been ojita said or maybe keith that they were like growling dogs before every game and then right before the season david johnson says we're not only going to win we're going to dominate yeah that's so cool and frank cash was pissed and he's like i don't fucking care we're gonna dominate what do you want me to say you want me to lie yeah frank cash was very reserved david johnson and these 1986 mets not reserved in the slightest they were very cocky very arrogant i would even say to a t uh but they did not care who you were they were going to try to absolutely shove it down your throat. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> God, this is so funny. Then they made the, they won the first game of the year and made a hip-hop song. 
Because as everybody does in 1986, you make a corny hip-hop song when you win a game. So bad. Howard Johnson had a bad verse. Oh, my God. Kevin Mitchell had a bad verse. Oh, Jesus Christ. Daryl had a horrific verse. Like, these guys listen to this were like, we are the coolest. And then they immediately <laughs> lose three games in a row after that song. <laughs> so bad. It's so bad. If you guys haven't heard it, go listen to it. It is just... It's a great meme, though. Like, when the Mets when the Mets win the World Series, we're blasting that 100%. Get Metsmerized. Get Metsmerized. Oh, my God. And then they had a big, right after that, they were playing like shit. The media was starting to chirp at them a little bit. They had a big four-game set against the Cardinals, the team that ended their season last year, and they swept them in four games, planted their flag. Whitey Herzog said they were, like, playing October games in April, and the team went on to win 18-19 after that and kind of bury this era of, of strong Cardinals teams. Yeah, no, they uh, they really didn't look back when this 1986 season came along. They were absolutely dominant. They were just way better than everyone else. Yeah. And then the documentary got more into the drug stuff, and the commissioner on the eve of that season said that uh, these players have dignity. We know, we're confident, no one, none of our players are going to be doing cocaine anymore. And it goes to Lenny and just starts laughing. <laughs> He said we put the S in speed. <laughs> <laughs> Just taking greenies before every game. I had to even about the Coke from the night before. He said 90% of this team took greenies. Like the only one who remembered never taking one was Gary Carter. And Lenny said, he was. I was trying to make him take a man. I told him, hey, Gary, I'll make you a lot better, man. <laughs> Lenny Dykstra is such a bad friend, a guy you don't want to have around. He'll give you great stories, but he is going to get you in a ton of trouble as he's well. Gotta, he's got to be one of the worst friends in the history of friends. History of the world. <laughs> history of Jesus the world. Jesus Christ. There was one night when they were on the road, and Lenny came back after going out, and he just kicked down Gary Carter's hotel door. And he said, Gary Carter picked him up by the collar of his shirt and told him, you'll never fucking do that to me again. <laughs> Lenny Dykstra was unhinged. He was out of control. He was an insane human being. He said we walked around like we had 15-inch cocks because it felt like we did. <laughs> Didn't, didn't he say something along the lines of, like, we played hard and we fucked hard or something as well? Well, no. They said when they were going on the road that they wanted to beat you, drink your beer, and fuck your women. That's what it was, yes. Yeah. <laughs> God. Uh, what else we got here? The funniness between Keith and uh, Gary Carter also never stopped. They basically stepped on each other's toes. And Gary, like, tried to be the public leader, but Keith was the real leader. Like, he would circulate around the game. He would talk to every single position group. Like, he was able to see things that other people saw that was really, I think, really cool. Well, there was, like, I don't remember exactly what the details were, but, like, at one point, someone was struggling on the mound, and Gary Carter went and talked to him, and then Keith went and talked to him. He was like, throw a fucking fastball, otherwise I'll kill you, or something like that. You mix two together, but he basically said there would always be multiple mound visits. Like, Gary would do a mound visit, he'd walk back, and immediately Keith would walk out and say whatever he wanted to say. But that Keith line, that was from that crazy game six against the Astros in, uh, okay. in the NLCS that year. He's like, if you throw another fastball, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the greatest quotes of all time. But then, like, while this team was sick, like, they were 44 and 16 in June, which is hysterical. Like, everyone Disgusting. was buying in. Everyone was amazing. Doc was struggling for the first time in his career, and his performance dipped. And he mentioned, like, losing that high of being one of the best pitchers in baseball kind of hurt him, like, mentally. And then he got injured. He got stuck down in Tampa. He said he started doing a lot more drugs there, basically because he was, like, bored. And I don't think like anyone realized how bad he was with it because it seemed kind of normal with the rest of the team. Daryl was also partying like crazy. The equipment manager, who was always a great interview also in this, said that there was one game where Daryl missed BP and the equipment manager had to run out to the parking lot to give him his uniform so no one would know. It's crazy. Like, oh man, imagine being a part of these teams during that time. Just as like a, a little fly in the wall, it would have been electric. Yeah, the Bat Boy and the, and the equipment manager were just saying crazy things. But also, one of the crazy stories that came out of it was that Ray, Car- Ray Knight was at this like fancy, upscale, like Southern banquet. I forgot even what it was for. And the commissioner approached him and said, hey, we have a private detective following one of your young black superstars, and he's doing a lot of cocaine. You have to fix it. And he was like, who is it? He's like, you have to find out. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's a TV show? Which is like funny, too, because like there were two 
black superstars on the Mets. At yeah, the time, it's 50-50. So. <laughs> and then he asked Daryl, and Daryl's like, I wasn't going to say it was me. I told him it was Doc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they threw each other right under the bus. <laughs> under the bus. Didn't even look to both ways, but holy shit. And also just go to show how famous these guys were. Like, Keith and Ronnie were on the cover of GQ. Like, Carter and Strawberry were in ads everywhere. Like you said before, these guys were A-listers. Like, they were all over the fucking place. Like, they were taking the shit to the next level of superstardom. And I also thought it was super crazy, too, that, like, as popular and as, like, great they were, a guy like Keith Hernandez, his relationship with his dad was so crazy. Like, his dad was insanely hard on him, but it seemed like Keith, like, really wanted that. And, like, he would call him after every game, after every at-bat. He wanted to hear everything that his dad thought. Well, because he basically said that his baseball career was like stemmed like from his dad because his dad was always his coach i think his dad was a semi-pro ball player i think his brother was also a minor league player so he really took what they had to say very seriously and his dad just got really really hard on him he said during this year he wasn't really having a best season at times i think i think he had like a crazy slump he went like oh for i don't remember exactly he might have been strawberry but basically keith just had a bad slump over the summer and his dad was being hard on him and he got pissed his dad is still giving him no credit for this amazing career he had he basically cut him off and he had never, ever smoothed it over with his dad, which is a really sad thing. Yeah, super sad. Like, he, all he ever wanted, it seemed like, was just approval from his dad. He yeah. just really could never get it, which is so heartbreaking to hear. Yeah, definitely is. But And also now more of the fun stuff. The fact they were riding these planes, it's a nice precursor to the plane they would ride home from Houston. Just going insane. I loved how they broke down the plane by sections on the documentary. And, like, showed the way a plane seating chart lies out. And they were like, here are the good guys. Here are the normal guys, like here are the gamblers, here are the drinkers, and here are the lunatics. Yeah. <laughs> and they had the scum bunch in the back, and they just went wild, drinking, gambling, screaming. And that also just played with their whole mantra on the road, which was, again, beat them, drink their beer, fuck their women. That was the Mets' attitude in the road that season. Literally lived it to a T. That's like, it's not just them saying it. That's all they cared to do, it seemed like. <laughs> yeah, and, and with that, like, they really did a lot of the last one. They were really having sex with tons of women all over the place. Keith said he didn't allow himself to stay out past 3 a.m. Because he knew something bad was going to happen. It was get dangerous. <laughs> the story also where they got Jay Horowitz a hooker in Montreal. <laughs> Which, like, if you guys don't know Jay Horowitz, he's got to be, like, one of the nerdiest guys on planet Earth. He's been the, he was the PR guy for the Mets for, like, 50 years. And he's like this short Jewish guy. He just has like voice like this. Yeah. He's a little ground glasses. He's like five foot three, two hundred pounds. I don't even know if he speeds. Like that's like how goody two shoes Jay Horowitz appears to be. He stays fifteen percent below the speed limit at all times. And they hi- they got him a hooker at his reaction. They got me a hooker. Like he was just. What am I gonna do? I'm just gonna do it. Yeah. He was so uncomfortable. <laughs> and Lenny Dyke just cackling. <laughs> And Lenny Dykstra, with him. he's like a rookie on this team. He's assuming this insane role. These guys must have fucking hated Lenny Dykstra. Oh my god! But also, they like the, the classic stories that we've always heard that uh, that Daryl used to pick out girls from the stands and bring them down into the locker room between innings and then send yeah. them back up. And Davey was like, "I don't care. They're playing well. Yeah, he plays well. Who cares?" <laughs> the fact that Wally Backman, Wally Backman, also you've never seen Wally Backman. He's like a generous five foot six. He's not exactly like an Adonis. He said that they would go into hotels and all the groupies were there, and they would go up and down with girls over and over again and just keep alternating. Yeah. They would, said, they would, said they wouldn't even check into rooms. <laughs> and that they would take these girls up and down all day. Like, what the fuck? These were girls on the road who were coming to hit on the Mets. That's how famous the Mets were. The Mets. And, like, it's not like we're talking about, you know, like, uh, Mike Trout-level players. Like, Wally Backman? Wally Backman comparable to today? I mean, who would you even say? He's a contact-oriented second baseman. He wouldn't even be a Major League Baseball player today. Like David Fletcher. It's like in Mundo Sousa. Sosa. <laughs> Basically, without the without the shortstop eligibility. This team was crazy. Absolutely nuts. 
Oh my god! It's also just there's so many little tiny things in this that you could expand on so much that are so funny. Like the fact that Gary Carter made a habit of curtain calls, and yeah. Keith Hernandez was like, "I didn't like that very much." Keith, Mister Old School, to a T. I could have told Jack Keith Hernandez hated Gary <laughs> Carter's curtain calls, and it got them thrown out all the time because the fans of City of Shea Stadium would go so crazy. Also, Shea looked sick back then. It was popping. It made me kind of miss Shea. Yeah, for the atmosphere, but the yeah. stadium itself is just absolute dog shit compared to City Field. Of course, it was a pit, but like the vibes, the orange seats in the field level. Vibes are unmatched, that's yeah. for sure. Vibes were unmatched. <laughs> but like they got thrown out and they had more fights and everyone put a target on their back and they're like, good, fuck it. Or like the massive bar fight in Houston, which yeah. is like a little bit of a precursor to what's going to happen later in the year, but... Four guys went to jail. <laughs> And then they walk in the back with open arms. They said the players put tape over their lockers to imitate jail jail bars. Bobby O'Heath said after that that the team, the check engine light was on and the car was going at warp speed. Yeah, though they were, I like it's so cliche, but like they really did just have like unbelievable vibes in this locker room. Unbelievable vibes. It seems like one of the most insane environments ever. Also, they showed that insane Keith play. That's one of the most famous plays ever made by a first baseman, where he charged all the way across the diamond on a bunt. Bunt through the ball, like leaning back, crosses by the third base, and double play completed first. Two insane facts about that: I never realized that that was in the same game as the infamous Ray Knight Eric Davis fight. Yes, which was holy shit! Like that was a real fucking brawl. And also, Ray Knight always had those little perceptions around him being from the South, not liking certain people, so that people thought that might have played into it. And that when I looked at that play, Gary Carter was playing third base. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? Because Ray Knight got ejected. Got ejected. They had nobody else to play. And the other thing about that fight, too, is this is a big reason why George Foster had a little bit of falling out with the Mets, too. Because George Foster played with the Reds. Like, those were guys he played with a few years ago. Probably some of his friends yeah. did not get off the bench. Just no. watched the team fight. And that was a huge, huge problem. Yeah, that kind of killed his vibes within the team. Also, he, he was not a fighter. He was more of a good guy. It seemed like he never really fit in, in this locker room. He also denied permission to speak in this documentary. He wasn't a part of it. So it just seemed like this wasn't really a... Uh, this whole team wasn't really his jam. That also takes us to the third episode where Mike Tyson just was in it, the heavyweight champion of the world, just hanging out with Doc and Daryl pregame. Just like it's also crazy, like how old Mike Tyson is, like yeah. and how long his career lasted is pretty insane. It really is. I also our generation kind of misses how big boxers were back then. Like yeah. boxing was one of the preeminent sports in this country. Basically, boxing and baseball, which is hilarious to think about now. Now it's like UFC and football, but just how big of a deal Mike Tyson actually was being there. And then also back to George Foster, he got cut right after. That uh, that fight thing, the team said it was a race thing, but Kevin Mitchell's the guy who took his job, which was kind of funny. Well, no, George Foster said it was a race thing. The Does, team yeah. said it wasn't, yeah. and that, that Kevin uh, Kevin Mitchell took his job. Another African American player at the time. It was like George Foster was, was he just didn't fit with the team. Like it might have been racially motivated a little bit. I think it probably had more to do with his play was declining. They were paying him a lot of money, and he just really wasn't that good anymore. I um, mean, they had a guy that they could put in there and would help the team a lot more. It was weird. It was definitely weird because like, there, there are two sides to every story, and I don't blame George Foster for what he said or what he did. Yeah, but it also wouldn't shock me the way that Frank Cashin handled other things with this team, that maybe he was like a little bit racist, but definitely not because of this move. You know? Yeah. And it was also just really funny that old, old boy Lee Mazzilli got that roster spot once they got rid of George Foster. <laughs> that was probably the thing that you could point to. Be like, well, yeah. why does Lee Mazzilli get it? Because he wasn't very good anymore. No, he's just the Italian guy from Brooklyn. But still vibes, good vibes. Still, oh, immaculate vibes still. Lee Mazzilli's got great vibes. And then they came out with that, another bad song in August Let's that go, year. Mets go, Mets go. That's a banger. Horrific. That, But that went like 1980s style viral, which is yeah. pretty funny. And then Gary Carter got hurt, and he started playing a little bit of first base because he couldn't catch every day. And that gave us, what, Ed Hearn right behind the plate, who was actually a 
pretty good backup. Yeah, and he came gave some great quotes in this documentary as well. He was, he was an electric factor the whole time. Jock Gibbons also became the backup, which is funny. Former yeah. uh, Blue Jays manager, just another another guy who was a part of this team. And the team did great without Gary Carter. Apparently it killed him. Yeah, it was it was driving him nuts. His wife was on there all the time. He's like, he was dying that he couldn't play. He couldn't handle it. <laughs> and then those two weeks also cost him the MVP because he ended up coming in third of the voting that year. And while he's still even missing those two weeks, led Major League Baseball in RBIs. Just again, just goes to show how good of a player he was, especially leading the league in RBIs as a catcher. We're not going to play every day anyway, and he missed two weeks with an injury. Like, it's incredibly impressive for him. Yeah, no. I mean, the team was loaded. The team was loaded top to bottom. So it was like when one guy, you know, stepped away, another guy stepped up. Like, literally every single time someone stepped up for this team. Literally. And then just to get through the end of the season, the Mets were kind of just, just walking their way through because they were winning by 20 games, and the season didn't matter, which probably ended up making them not as sharp as they could have been for the playoffs, which almost almost cost them. But Roger McDowell was doing what not so shit. He would do the thing where he puts pants on his head and his uniform on his on his uh, bottom. He would just walk around like that, which was pretty funny. He used to light his shoes on fire in the dugout. which like, Hot foot. That's insane. <laughs> I can't believe that's a thing. Hot foot. <laughs> like, how, how could you let someone do that? You're going to melt his shoe. But again, this team was just twenty games up before you to play. Like, what the fuck are they going to do? Cindy Lauper said watching them was like reading a novel. Like, you just it was it was entertaining. Which is also like funny to have her in there talking about the Mets in 1986. She was like, I was in love with every guy. <laughs> <laughs> but Queens gal, Queens gal, and this is the slump I was thinking about. Daryl was not yeah. doing well. He went 0 for 45 at Chase Stadium in August. Got booed excessively. He had the quote where he said he wished he was a homeless person, so no one expected anything of him. He was going through some sh- some mental shit, and like he was like struggling with his wife too. He was like kind of smacking her around a little bit yeah he was definitely um, violent with her did not have a great relationship as you could imagine for a guy who was violent and cheating on his wife it seemed like seemingly every time he went on the road um he was going through some really really tough times and it seemed like the Mets were almost close to kind of like losing him in a way well they basically did like not very long after this it seemed just like nobody on this team or in this organization really did enough to and not that it's anyone's job to do that to, to, to bring someone up and mentor somebody but it seemed like no one really really pulled him up the way they could have, like, been a leader, been a mentor. It's also probably because, there, besides George Foster, there were no older African-American players in this team. Like, especially in this time, the way the racial divide still was in America and in baseball, it'd probably be hard for a guy like Gary Carter or, like, Keith Hernandez to take someone like Daryl Strawberry under their wing. He probably would be like, you don't, you don't know anything about me. You will know what I'm going through. You know nothing about the way I grew up. Yeah, Daryl's life was very different than Gary Carter and Keith Hernandez yeah. growing up. Also interesting is just how many more black players were in baseball in the 1980s. Like, that was so clear watching this. Between the Mets, the Astros, and the Red Sox, all the teams they focused on, they were just flush, every single one of them. Well, you have to think about the time period, too. So you saw Willie Mays and Hank Aaron really get their, yeah. their rise, and that was because of Jackie Robinson. So and Frank it's like Robinson. All, the, yeah, all those great players then led to, like, you know, younger African-American kids seeing that, being like, I can be like this guy, which is something that we've, like, missed in baseball because there hasn't been this influx of African-American players um, especially like the great ones, we saw Barry Bonds, and that's where you and see Griffey. Guys, yeah, that was the yeah, generation Griffey, before. But us. that's where you see like McCutcheon and guys like him that like came up during that time. Like everything is kind of generational. So when the great players, there's like that gap in between. But there was a ton during this time in baseball. But it's also about the popularity of baseball compared to basketball and football. Like baseball during those times in the 60s and 70s and the 50s was by far the most popular sport in America. Nothing else was even close. And through the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, is very much taken a backseat to both basketball and football. I think that is where a lot of that has gone, you know? Yeah, oh, without a doubt. It's not as accessible as basketball. Without a, Basketball, you don't need anything really to play. You can just make it up by yourself. Baseball's a hard hard sport to get into. Yeah, just the yeah, best way to show up and play. But this also coincided with the time when the city was seeing a lot of crime, and that was something that was uh, wearing on people. But they kind of flipped this, the documentary, and like use it to like show how the Mets were embodying the way the city was. Just the team was like 
grimy and dirty they weren't corporate and they were visceral like it was kind of cool to see that the Mets had this like kind of like this mantra that I think they still kind of run with today yeah the city and the Mets kind of went hand in hand if the Mets were doing well if the Mets were doing this the city was doing this if the Mets were doing that the city was doing that like they just were kind of synonymous with each other as they should be this is kind of funny but like we always do we kind of just realized that we've been talking for almost an hour basically about only half of this documentary so yes. we might we might be cutting this episode short soon before we get but like get it up until the Mets made the playoffs that year and this was another funny classy Keith Hernandez story that he skipped the, the NLE's clinching game it's hilarious it's hilarious the Mets that stuff can't happen now it just wouldn't happen <laughs> he said it was freezing out and I had a cold <laughs> <laughs> yeah we know what that meant we know what that meant Keith. Yeah, 100% and then he came in for Dave McGadden who had a great game he had two hits and an RBI in the ninth inning so he could be on the field for the celebration that's that's a baller move right there <laughs> major baller move you do that when you're the stud and he was the stud and then the fact that this was still in the time of the world when uh, professional sports facilities were raided after teams won things. And these players were genuinely horrified by the, the Shea Stadium faithful and what was going to happen. People were trying to dig up home plate. <laughs> they did. They got it out. The, con- the big ass like for the concrete, they got it out of there. The outfielders were scared. Mookie Wilson said the only thing he was thinking about of which direction he was going to run to get off this field. Like, Could you imagine being the left fielder? You're fucked. Being swarmed by 50,000 people? <laughs> Keith said someone came for his glove. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to steal it, it, like, his hand. It, people were coming after bases, the grass, the dirt, the players, the hats. The, like, literally anything was up for grabs. Trying to rip anything off to remember this moment, which is, again, imagine if that happened today. <laughs> but these Mets fans were incensed. This was the team's first playoff appearance in 13 years. There were, like, tons of videos of these fans eating grass. There yeah. was at least 15, 20 people they showed in the small snippets of this documentary. Eating grass. Cons- That's crazy. Consuming grass. Putting it in their mouth. Chewing and swallowing it. Spitting it out. Ah, a green tongue. <laughs> Yeah, I, it was a crazy time for the Mets, for everybody. It was nuts. Fucking crazy time. And that sets the stage for uh, the Mets NLCS against Houston, which I thought those games were interesting, so I'd like to like kind of get into them a little bit. And we're not going to have anything to talk about next week either. So we'll, we'll save that for next week. Yeah, we'll save that for next week. Uh, we're Because it really is. The, the playoffs are their own story as well. Like They are two episodes, basically, of this entire thing. So we're going to save that for a part two. Hate to blue ball you guys a little bit here, but... Uh, we did talk for about 50 minutes, and we did not think we were going to go this long, honestly. No. But you can't you can't forget all the little stuff, because that's what made this documentary in this 30 for 30 series so great, was all the little things like we talked about at the beginning. So make sure you guys are you know following us wherever you do. Mets up on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube channel. Make sure you're following us on Apple, uh, was it, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, so that you don't miss out, because part two will be coming later. We're going to have to separate these two because we're not going to do, like we said, an hour and 20-minute episode. You'll just get two that go for two hours instead where we cover the playoffs on for this 1986 Mets team from the Once Upon a Time in Queens documentary. Thank you guys for listening. If you have not yet followed James, follow him at Cheater Had No Range, me at Giraffe Nick Mark, and uh, we'll see you for the next episode of the Mets Up Podcast, episode number 74, I think. Yeah. That'll be the next one, yeah. Peace out. Part two coming later. Bye. Peace out, guys. See you next week. I'm George Foster. I love this team. The Mets are better than the Red Machine. I live to play, and that's my thing. This year we're going to win the series ring. Play together. Our team's real tight. A mess with us, we're dynamite. Strawman Daryl is all the same. Call him Barry. What's in a name? Thank you, George. You're a classy guy with your black back. You know we sure rely. You know California is where I'm from, but for New York, I hit home runs.
speed, you know we got. We're the beast of the east. When you're hot, you're hot. When Dwight is in the groove, there's no doubt. Next word you'll hear, three strikes, you're out. Dwight's my name, what can I say? You know they call me Dr. K. Change up, fastball, slider, and curve. Step up to the plate if you got the nerve. When they want a batter, filled with terror, they call on me, Rick Aguilera. Slider's hot, I'm on the mound. Cool control, I'm mowing down. I'm Kevin Mitchell, season's rough, studying all the moves. I'm ready to cook, I got it together, I'm ready to play. I'm up in the big, and I'm hoping to stay. I'm Team Tuffle, let me begin by saying I was once a twin. I made the move, it feels just right. I've been mesmerized, I see the light. My name is Hojo, I'm here to say, my team is going all the way. With pitching, power, speed, and style, results guaranteed to make you smile. Get mesmerized, get mesmerized. 